The Night Owl Podcast, Episode 8, The Clay Pit, Part 3. Welcome to the Night Owl Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Blue, and this is a place for all you restless spirits out there to tune in and hear true tales of the paranormal. I hunt these stories down, capture them from the mouths of those who experience them, and share them with you, right here. If you have a story to tell, please send an email to thenightowlpodcast at gmail.com. In this episode, Sarah and I return to the clay pit for two more thorough investigations. Sarah pushes the spirits to give her more answers while I start connecting the dots to this mystery by means of research and more interviews. I discover a secret about the tunnels in the cellar that coincides with Sarah's visions. Sarah gets a name for the little boy that shocks me with the knowledge I have from my research, and I make a startling new discovery regarding the fire Sarah keeps having visions of in the building. Sarah also faces the mirrors once more, discovers a new intelligent spirit who's been hiding from us this whole time, a spirit that evokes fear in both Stedman and April and may be connected to their deaths. And to make matters even more interesting, a new photograph surfaces that appears to have captured this elusive spirit in the upstairs mirrors. Stay tuned. If you're a fan of the show, and are interested in getting access to exclusive extras behind each episode, consider helping us out by becoming a Night Owl patron. Visit patreon.com slash the Night Owl podcast. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com. So after Sarah and I's first visit to the clay pit, I was left with a ton of questions. Was this April spirit, the Scarlet Lady, rumored to haunt the building? Was the little boy Sarah saw the spirit commonly believed to be Rudolph Bertram's son, who had died of an illness at a young age in the upstairs bedroom? And who was Stedman, this African-American spirit Sarah found in the same room upstairs? Was Stedman making the noises and generating the energy people associated with the boy spirit? And what the heck were those loops she was seeing? The party scene upstairs, the workers downstairs in the cellar, and what about the tunnels? Is there any proof that there was in fact a tunnel or two down in the cellar? And what about the fire? There was no mention of a fire by anyone on staff or on the Haunted ATX team. I wanted to start finding out some answers. So as usual, I started my dive down this familiar rabbit hole at the Austin History Center. It was Sunday at the History Center, and there happened to be this cool-looking Lego meetup group building some amazing things in one of the rooms leading back to the research area. I actually ran into an old friend there, said a quick hello, and then pushed my way back to the research room where it was nice and quiet and pretty empty. I thought to myself, man, I'd like to go play with some Legos right now. But the center was only going to be open for another six hours, so I knew I needed to get started. I found out Rudolph Bertram and his family had a huge file there. It would definitely take me more than six hours to go through it all, but I decided to skim through and catch important dates, names, photographs, etc. I also wanted to go through the city directories dating back as far as I could for the location itself. It wasn't hard, just time-consuming. Here's just a quick rundown of what I was able to date this place back to. It appears from the records the very building that was the foundation for the Bertram store was built in 1860 by Abner Cook. From 1860 to 1879, the property was under Rudolph Bertram's name solely. It wasn't until 1885 that it appears Bertram and his family seemed to have sold the building and moved. The building appeared to predominantly remain a general merchandise store with a saloon as well. The building seems to have stayed in this business up until about 1918. However, things get fuzzy around this time period. From 1920 to 1940, it's 20 years, 
It shows the building as vacant on the city directories for these time periods. Then, in 1940, the building appears to have been reopened as a restaurant called Old Madrid Cafe. And then, from 1942 to 1954, it's a good 12 years, it's listed as Old Seville Restaurant. From here on out, it changed hands a few times until it finally became the Clay Pit in 1998. I found a huge archive of Bertram family papers and records, but didn't have any luck tracking down any information on his children or their deaths. There were a ton of photographs, but sadly, they lacked dates and important information like the names of the individuals in the photographs. Another important note to make is that this building had several addresses throughout the years, but I had no luck finding any articles on a fire at any of these addresses, nor any deaths there either. There also wasn't any mention of the tunnels. There were a couple of handwritten bios from students in the file, and they all made mention of the belief that there were tunnels down there, but nothing I found was proof that they actually existed. More just hearsay. I also branched out in every direction I could that was tied to this building and tried to find names that might be connected that matched what Sarah had gotten, April and Stedman. But again, nothing. The Austin History Center was closing soon and the patient and helpful staff at the center were starting their closing routine, so I had to call it a night. I actually left feeling really defeated, but was determined to come back soon. In the meantime, Sarah and I were going to go back to the clay pit soon, so maybe I could get more info then that might lead to something new. But before we went back... There were a few other folks that I wanted to talk to. First, I wanted to run a couple of things by my friend and fellow ghost hunter, Alexis Arredondo, who you know from episode 5, South Texas Tells. He's the one who shared his story about the seance in Corpus Christi with us, and if you haven't heard it, be sure to check that out. But Alexis and I go way back. We met in Corpus Christi while attending college there in 2004. We had a lot in common. Both were from small South Texas towns, both of us were filmmakers and storytellers, and both of us were curious about the paranormal. We actually did our first ghost hunt together our last year in college there. But we've come a long way, and I've watched as Alexis has expanded his knowledge in the field by studying and even practicing occultism, parapsychology, and many spiritual traditions. So I knew he was the person to call about Sarah seeing the dark figures in the mirrors, the energy she saw flowing through the mirrors, and also the loops she was seeing upstairs and in the cellar. The audio here is going to be a little bit rougher since I had to hop on a call and discuss this with Alexis in the moment when I was thinking about it. And also, this first part you're going to hear is our discussion on the actual makeup of the building. Alexis took a trip to the clay pit with me on one of the investigations and actually was able to see that this entire building is in fact made of limestone. Limestone, and not all limestone, but especially, I feel like this type of limestone definitely because when you look at it in certain lights, you do see these light reflective surfaces, and that's quartz. And limestone sometimes, basically limestone is made of a, a mixture of ingredients, but sometimes there's quartz that gets mixed in it. And what quartz does has a lot of spiritual properties, and it usually can remove, take in certain energies. But if you have a building that's completely covered in limestone, you're essentially trapping things in because it can get out. And also, it records energy, and it's become what has been known as the stone tape theory. Stone as in, this, this case, limestone. Tape as in the case like tape of sticky, you know, sticking things onto each other. So stone tape theory basically says that the energy from the stone can stick certain energies to it. So in this case, basically, you have these spirits that are kind of replaying the energy of this loop over and over and over again because of the limestone that's in the building. There's, this, there's this, a parapsychology theory that 
if you do a certain action in a certain way in a certain room every day, that years from now, depending on the type of energy in the space, that action will repeat. And this is kind of where we get like the residual haunting. So residual haunting essentially is just the actions of a past energy kind of replaying itself over and over and over again. So in this case, because of the limestones, because it's so strong, you really are kind of, it's like heightening that. So you basically have this constant loop going over and over and over and over because it has nowhere else to go. It's stuck in that building and it's going to continue going in that building. This, this limestone building is like a giant battery. The battery is on the outside and it's just looping this thing in the middle over and over and over and over and over again. Then we went on to talk about the mirrors and the black figures that Sarah had seen. So, I mean, mirrors have played a long, long time role in in parapsychology and, and this the study of spirituality. Mirrors are still used even today in spiritual practices. Black mirrors or obsidian mirrors were used uh, back in the time of the Aztecs, and they call it the smoking mirror. But mirrors are used a lot because essentially they were considered to be gateways to the spiritual world. In traditional custom, when someone dies in the house, they always tell you to cover the mirrors because they don't want the spirit to get trapped inside the mirror. Or the other theory is that because the spirit will see its reflection and realize that it's dead and cause havoc uh, through that realization, such as breaking the mirror or causing more things to happen within the home. In this case, it sounds like the mirrors are being used as a portal. The spirits are using the mirrors in order to travel in and out of different rooms or different areas of the actual location. Again, this could be something that goes back to the limestone theory, that maybe that limestone is energizing the space to create more of this possibility. And then the other thing that you have to think about, too, is in ceremonial magic, mirrors are used specifically to open up portals and gateways to let spirits come through or demons come through as well. So essentially, if you think about it in that respect, this is a good, definitely a good theory, that the limestone is essentially empowering these mirrors and giving them the possibility, giving the spirits the possibility to use them as a portal. As we're seeing kind of the darker, shadowy objects in the mirrors, I would definitely see that as like a portal type thing because Darker spirits and energies usually need to find a way to kind of come through, and a mirror would be a definite like break conduit to bring something darker into the house. The conversation was definitely interesting and had my mind racing with thoughts about those mirrors and when Sarah and I would return, if those black figures would still be there. The next thing on my mind was this idea of the tunnels and this so-called guide town or red light district of Austin. It was on my mind because I had a little bit of confusion about it. I I know that I'd researched this information because I was curious if there was any shred of evidence that there might have been a brothel at the clay pit or underneath the streets of the clay pit in another building. I wasn't able to find anything on that either. However, I stumbled upon a book written by a local Austin author named Richard Zalade, called Guy Town by Gaslight, A History of Vice in Austin's First Ward. 
I picked up a copy, and with the help of my father, actually, we kind of went through the book. We were able to pick out a few things and bits of information from this. I learned that the actual location of Guytown was a bit further from where the clay pit is located. However, I was lucky enough to make contact with the author of this book and set up a phone call to kind of pick his brain and ask him a few questions that were on my mind. I'm Richard Zelade, a local historian, writer, been here about 45 years now, and Guytown by Gaslight is a history of vice in Austin's first ward, which just happens to be the exact footprint of uh, today's warehouse uh, district. Uh, today's pleasure-seeking visitors to the warehouse district walk on top of Guytown. Uh, what were some other names for it? Because I know there's, there's lots of names that are tossed around for Guytown, but what are the other ones you've heard? Five Points, Little Mexico... Mexico, Cooneyville, those are the ones that come immediately to mind and were the uh, most often used. Uh, it rose from the Colorado River and went up to what is now Fifth Street. And then it started from the east at Congress Avenue and went to uh, Shoal Creek. With the clay pit, the clay pit is located further north of, of Guadalupe and 16th Street. However, the stuff that would happen in Guytown, like brothels, prostitution, gambling, was it contained in that area, or were there also possibilities of other places downtown that could have this sort of seedy doings or happenings going on at the time? Well, Guytown was the most concentrated area of vice and immorality, but yeah, it was scattered throughout the uh, city over around Red River and Waller Creek. There was a haven uh, off and on uh, going up to maybe about 5th or 6th Street, notorious spot along Congress Avenue. No one ever mentions the tunnels in any of the historical records. I was just curious to know if you knew about downtown area having tunnels um, and if it was during this time at all? I'm not aware of any tunnels that existed. Uh, I mean, it was hard enough just digging basements. People did have basements back then, but, but as you know, the geology of Austin is such that uh, you hit solid rock pretty quickly, and there just wasn't any compelling reason to have tunnels, at least downtown. More than tunnels, you had ditches that were dug for pipes, and then they were, then they were covered over. Because you've got to remember, too, that Austin was, was little more than a frontier town population-wise at that time, and there was no real industry other than the ice plant and the gas company that furnished uh, gas made from coal to, to provide the lighting. So there, you know, there wasn't any heavy industry or, or need for tunnels, really. So this was interesting. Um, Guytown was actually located many, many blocks south of where the clay pit now stands. However, talking with Richard, it was clear that these sort of brothels and gambling dens weren't isolated just to Guytown. They were also in spots throughout downtown as well. So it's not completely implausible that there was possibly some brothels in the neighborhood of the Clay Pitts building. But the one thing that he was unsure about was the tunnels. And I was going to have to do some more research if I was going to get to the bottom of this one. But thankfully, I would find another clue to these tunnels in a conversation I had with Bali, one of the owners of the Clay Pit. What do you know about the tunnels? And if you do know stuff, is it stuff you just heard or have you actually seen some actual proof that there was tunnels here? There has been a few incidents that uh, we, we, one time we like had some, you know, pests were like coming out. So we had a company come in and they had to plug out all the 
the holes. So we decided to just, you know, joke around it and slide how far we can slide the uh, the copper wire and see how far it can go. Uh, it was pretty interesting to see that it actually, I would say, like went definitely about like five and a half, six feet deep. And uh, we were like, okay, so there are some areas. So I know they are blocked up and all that, but the rumor, it did verify to us that the rumor is not rumor. There were actually some sort of a pathway or walkway over there across the street. Uh, what wall was that on? Like where was that where you pushed the, the copper through? Oh, as soon as you walk down the cellar on the right-hand side, right now we have a nice little like uh, wooden closet built out in there because we've been storing our extra stuff like glasswares and flatwares, stuff like that. I went on to ask Bali about the location of the supposed other tunnel that might have led to the state capitol. Because on my first visit, I had really only noticed the one that was to the right at the bottom of the stairs of the cellar. That one had a clear archway that looked like a doorway, so I could see how that being bricked up looks like a bricked up tunnel. However, I hadn't seen anything else, so I was curious about this other tunnel. So if you see that one when you walk down the uh, cellar area, all the way straight, the wall, like as soon as you step down the stairs and you see straight across, we have like three very beautiful Indian paintings over there too, and then you see a ledge. You will see a tiny little arch in the corner area. That arch actually... If you start digging it deep down, it that arch means something. You know, it was the top of some end pathway entrance to that. So, I'm, if I'm assuming, I'm sure, like if you go dig it down there, you had to step down, or there will be some stairs because it will not be the same level of tunnel. Like it would be actual tunnel, tunnel. You step down in a basement, and then it's starting to go somewhere else. So now I had a clearer picture. And I knew where these supposed tunnels were believed to have been. When you go down the stairs to the cellar in the clay pit, and you immediately take a right when you hit the bottom of those stairs in the cellar, there is an archway that's now covered by a shelf that holds dishware and flatware. Well, it wasn't until I went back a second time that I noticed this smaller archway that Bali was talking about. It's another archway that matches the same top of the archway of the other door to the right of the bottom of the stairs, but this one is located on the main front-facing wall down in the bottom of the cellar. So if you go down the stairs and you look all the way at the end of the cellar, that main big wall, you look down towards the bottom of that wall, and there's a small archway that gets cut off by the floor. And it appears as if it was a doorway that might have had stairs leading down to that part of the doorway. So I'm not sure if there was tunnels, but there's definitely these framed out doorways and tops of archways, which are kind of interesting that have now been bricked up by a different type of brick. And what was really interesting to me was that this smaller cutoff archway towards the bottom of the floor was the same wall that Sarah was seeing the main tunnel that the men were carrying boxes through. And I didn't even know that that's where the tunnel was supposedly supposed to be. I had only really been shown the tunnel to the right of the bottom of the stairs that has the shelf in front of it. So it's interesting that Sarah was seeing a main tunnel on the main wall without seeing any archways. It was Friday, February 13th, and I was standing outside the clay pit once again and I was waiting on Sarah and her husband, Renee to arrive. I was excited to have Renee back on this investigation. I recall how helpful he'd been at the tavern. Sarah had used his energy to help us lure the spirit of Emily out of hiding, and then later, we used him to push the angry spirit of Walter away so Sarah could get more answers from Emily. I wasn't sure if we'd need him again for something like that this time around, but I was glad he was coming on this second investigation with this. They arrived shortly, and immediately, Sarah wanted to get inside and check out one of the mirrors. 
You coming back to the mirror? I just had to check something. Okay, no shadows. Good. Feet are still here. They are? I was yeah. wondering about that. Yeah, we can go anywhere. If you want to go down there, we can. I have to remember how to turn the light switch on. Get your camera ready. Oh. We're depending on your pictures now. A spirit photographer. No, uh, no pressure. <laughs> Sarah and I were teasing Renee about trying to take another photograph like he had done at the tavern. The one that gave me, the staff at the tavern, and a lot of you listeners goosebumps. Boy, it sure would be awesome to get a photograph like that again here. But honestly, we all knew the chances of that were slim to none. Sarah wanted to head down into the cellar right away, but this time, we were mostly left on our own. Alexis, who, let me make a quick clarification, I called her the general manager in the previous episode. She's actually a manager, not the general manager. That was my mistake. But anyway, she wasn't working this night, and Dredd, another manager, had given us freedom to do our thing for the next few hours while the staff cleaned up and closed the place down. So, we went down into the cellar. Sarah had a seat and pulled out her notepad and started to have a conversation with April almost immediately. Can you... Uh... Yes, I did find it. It's in the, it was in the front. Oh, well, thank you. I am not. I am just wearing one thing today. He's... He's very safe. Renee, she doesn't... She's like, who the hell's that? <laughs> uh, I know he wasn't here before. She said, who the hell's that? No, I'm, I'm just... Okay. She's just asking. She's inquiring about you. So can you tell me how you... Why are you not like the rest of them? Kind of in a loop? She doesn't know I'm talking about. Okay. Can you not see the other people that are here with you? Just Renee? Yeah, I don't know what he's doing. (laughs) Big day tomorrow. It's a big day tomorrow. She knows it's a big day. She's going to have a lot of people here. It is. It's Valentine's Day. Yes. They're going to be busy here. Shiny. Everybody's dressed up. She likes that part. She misses that part. Wrong word. Who misses? So you know Stedman? Too many images. Hold on. Let me see. Can you slow down? Because that was a lot. It's really weird. It's like there's a... She's giving me a lot of different things. Like she's telling me there's a tunnel... Then something like a fire. There's lots of people, like a fire. And something about upstairs. And I, I think that's associated with Stedman, but I'm not quite sure. We'll find out when I get there. She, she was shot, actually. She's doing like this. Looks like she, it surprised her, so she's looking at. So she was shot. And there's lots of fighting. Like I can see people fighting or. What is it? Stars, like a raid, like a raid. Like they got raided and there was fighting. And in the thing, it was accident, it was an accident. She got shot in the stomach. She's just very plain. It's interesting though, I've never had them change clothes on me before. So that maybe it was a bad raid the last time, but she's wearing something different today. Um, It's more, um, last time it was like I'm working kind of plain everyday clothes and today's a little bit more a little more formal like a nicer look to her, the dress and her hair is very still so it's not moving as much as it was last time blonde ish maybe dirty blonde or 20s 
26, 7. Give me a, give me a number. 6. 26. She likes shiny stuff. Yes, we know this. That's what she's excited about tomorrow. She's doing that like this. At this moment, Sarah reached over and grabbed my shirt sort of underneath my armpit and tugged down on it. Like someone going up the stairs and she'll grab them as they go up. When Sarah did this, I recalled the story that Mark had told me down in the very cellar that we were standing in now about his experience when he first started working here. You already heard this in episode 6, but I wanted to replay it here so you could hear how similar the activity that Mark reported is to what Sarah is showing me now. Uh, it was just two of us and a manager closing, and this had to have been uh, after 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock at night. Uh, I was in the kitchen on the line and saw my coworker come in to my right from the outside, from the from the dining room, and they went behind me. And as I saw them pass me, I turned around the other way to my left to talk to them about something, and uh, they tugged on my shirt. And when I turned around towards that left to acknowledge them, uh, there was actually nobody there. Sarah was still continuing her conversation with April in the cellar. She just likes shiny objects. She likes touching the patrons, especially if the women are really dressed up. She likes to mess with like see what they're wearing or... April, can you not see the other people in here? Here. Where do you go when you leave here? Kitchen, hallway, bathroom. Door, front door. Kitchen, hallway, bathroom, front door, sometimes the bar. She uses the stairs. stairs. Yeah, but it's, yeah, she's showing me a different set of stairs. It's not the same, but she uses the stairs. That's how she goes up. Basically, this whole space, this is her space. And she knows about Sedman, which means she's been up further. So she's traveling. She's my traveling one. So I'm wondering now, like, if Stedman's seen her and the little boy in the dining hall. She's very strong-willed. She doesn't... She left. I think she has to have her last look at this stuff before they go. While she was shot, all I could see was, like, people, like, lots of people, and she was trying to, I guess, either move around them but she was, she, it was like a badge or a star uh, thing that she was showing me. So I was like, oh, it's a police related. It's almost like, a, like they got raided. Like she, she was, it was the feelings of surprise. And let's just see where she's doing. She's probably checking out everybody, messing with them, making sure they did their job. Sarah was saying that April appeared to have a routine where she liked to go up to the first floor at closing time and either check up on or mess with the staff. She couldn't decipher which one it was. Meanwhile, we all stayed down in the cellar as Sarah finished up her sketches from the conversation she had just had. Renee was sitting right at the foot of the cellar stairs at the first table there. Sarah and I were one table back from him. Suddenly, Sarah reacted to something she saw on the stairs, and she didn't appear to be too pleased with what she was seeing. That is not it. What the hell was that? What did you see? That was really weird. It was like a little, like a ball, like a little, I don't know how to explain it. Like if somebody blew a cloud of um, smoke and it just rolled downstairs and then it was right there, right there, like checking out Renee. And then it just kind of like went around and then it went back, right back out. It was a ball of smoke? It was like like a little, not a perfect ball, but kind of like moving. That was weird. Oh, righty then. Oh, that was weird. Okay. What did you feel? It scared me. It was very cold. Okay, I felt cold on my hand. I was wondering about that. That was 
It's really weird. Like all of a sudden it's super cold. <laughs> like, what was that? Okay. It's like they were coming to check you out. What's going on there, husband? In that moment, when Sarah reacted to something cold, I was actually holding the mic out in front of her, and I actually felt a cold gust of wind rush across the back of my hand. But this moment was short-lived, because suddenly, another visitor popped into the cellar to deliver a message to Sarah. How did you get down here? What was that? I was Stedman. I need to go upstairs. Okay. So he came down? He's he telling me to get out. We were making our way up to the second floor. This is where Sarah had had issues with the three mirrors behind the bar. A couple of black figures staring back at her had multiplied to about seven by the end of the night on our first investigation, making Sarah uneasy and weary of that second floor. I'd be lying if I said I wasn't nervous going up these stairs to face those mirrors once again. But soon, we were there. But the black figures, thankfully, they weren't. No shadows. Good. Still the same. But as for the loop, the rotation of people going through that party scene on the second floor, it was still there. Here it goes. My clockwork. That's awesome. So this is that other rotation. This is the other little step that stops when he walks through, so I'm going to follow him. We're laughing. And then he's gone. And then it starts all over again. Beautiful. That's awesome. Things seem to be much better now that the black figures were no longer in the mirrors. Maybe Sarah's theory about them being omens regarding her health scare had some validity. But now that things were less ominous upstairs, Sarah wanted to check up on Stedman the spirit of the African-American teenager who seemed to stay in the back room, known as the Bombay Room, on the second floor. She wanted to learn why and how he'd appeared downstairs in the cellar to warn Sarah to get out after seeing the odd shape of smoke on the stairway. Upon us three entering the Bombay Room, Sarah was mentioning that Stedman was a little unsure of Renee. Stedman, he's safe. He's not going to hurt you, I promise. He's saying we're safe here. Who am I hiding from? Are you going to talk to me, Stedman? So you know April. How, how do you know her? Okay. How old are you, Stedman? What did you used to do here? What was your job? Stedman, you can talk to me. You don't have to just show me pictures. You want to say something? Is there a message you want to give? Why are you... Can you not talk to April by yourself? Not since the fire. Okay, so the fire is at, like, a point. I bet you that guy's there. At this moment, Sarah was distracted, and she was saying that she bet the big guy, who Stedman called the keeper in the last episode, was out there in this loop again. She stepped out of the doorway to observe the loop once more. Yeah. What do you see? That it's that end of that loop. He doesn't interact with them, neither did they... So he keeps referring to that man who's in that loop? Yeah. It's so weird. Fat, round man. There's a big emphasis on how fat this man was. So really? he must have been a really heavy set man. Yeah. The steps are heavy. He's got a big belly. 
So this is, the, the, I call it the suspender era. So whatever era it was, everybody's wearing suspenders, it looks like. Stedman's got like a overall type that kind of have the little loops up here. And it's too big for him, so he's really kind of like swimming inside of it. Um, I can't see his feet, nor can I see the other man's feet for that matter. I, I just hear his footsteps, which is really odd. It's almost like the floor is supposed to be a little lower. It's like I only see like this, you know, from um, just above the ankles. Like if they're cut off, like right mm-hmm. here. And that's what you see of the people up here? Yeah. And is that the, what and you're seeing And I think that's underneath? the feet that I'm seeing underneath. I oh, think it's okay. like, like they're not really yeah. solid. So I'm wondering if they did something to the floors. Or maybe they're just, since it's just an impression, maybe it doesn't matter. Um, but there's two references to a fire here. Okay. And it must have been like a major fire. It has to have been after they had died, between you and I being here. So it must have been a fairly, okay, I want to call it fairly recent. I don't know when, you know, but it's not going to be in their timeline. It's going to be after. So after they had passed, there was a fire. There was a fire in the building. And it was a significant fire, must have been, because they were both mentioned it. It So it's probably not like a small kitchen fire or anything like that. It was like a a significant change to the building. And they both showed you that? And they both showed me that. So that's common between the two of them. It's this other person that I'm not quite sure. They're, they seem to be afraid of him, but I don't see him. Like here, he's just kind of interacting with this loop. So he's not interacting with me. So I don't know if he was just so abrasive maybe that his energy is still here. I don't know. It's really weird, but they're both kind of like very skittish about. They both mentioned him. Like she's just kind of going, yeah, there's this fat person running around here you know that kind of thing but she's not she's more a little defiant I guess about it mm-hmm. and he's more afraid and then when April showed you the fire is there any differences in it or like are they both showing you it or are they mentioning it how, how are you seeing it I'm seeing it mm-hmm. um like like it's heavy thick very thick um smoke it's everywhere it almost feels like they feel like they felt help, like helpless like I can see kind of people running through the smoke, but, like, they weren't able to help. They couldn't... They were just kind of stuck. What do you want me to tell her? He's insisting. Okay. I'll tell her, Stedman. And then he's... Okay. And then he's gone. Hmm. Okay. What do you want to say? But he's not going without her. He's not going to go without her. I don't know what that means. And he left before I could ask. I need... I want to know how he died. So far, we'd been at the clay pit for just about an hour but already things seemed to be going much smoother than the last visit. With no more shadow figures looming in the mirrors, Sarah appeared to be much more focused, and the spirits seemed to be communicating to her with ease. There were a few things I was already taking notes on. First, I needed to look more into this fire she kept getting references to by both April and Stedman. Second, I wanted to see if the building had signs of structural changes that might indicate the ceiling was once lower downstairs. This might explain the feet Sarah sees moving around on the first floor ceilings. If this loop is in fact a residual imprint from an older time, and during this time the floors were lower upstairs than they are now, it'd be a very plausible theory to suggest that the imprint would remain the same and the feet would appear stuck in the ceiling because of the change in height. And lastly, I was growing more curious about this large man, the Keeper and why April and Stedman seemed to be nervous about him. Sarah was curious too, and she wanted to sit and watch the loop upstairs more to see if she could notice anything new about it. She still believed that something was off about it, and she couldn't put her finger on it. But little did she know, she was about to make a huge discovery. I want to get a sense of how long this loop takes. Oh yeah, time it. So I want to time it. 
And you're seeing this man that they're referring to here? Yeah, but it's not like... He's not able to see us? He's not interacting? Let me get it at the top of the loop as soon as it starts. Because this is different from downstairs. Downstairs are constantly in motion. They come in and out, still carrying boxes. It's like they're working, like they're doing everything, but it's never the same. Well, it might be a repetitive pattern. I've got to pay attention. But it might be like one pattern and then another pattern and then another pattern and then it... Okay, ready? The loop started and Sarah began timing it. The audio here is very soft because she's whispering to herself, but what she's doing is just describing the pattern she's seeing. I'll boost the audio here so you can hear this part, but just note it's going to sound a bit rough. He's laughing. She's dancing. Steps. And they stop. And here comes the feet. Even with somebody here. Yeah. And she starts laughing. So there's a little pause in between the next loop. About a minute. A minute? And then who's this laughing? It's just some random person? Yeah, she, as soon as she starts laughing, it starts all over again. Hmm. Who am I not paying attention to? Hold on. Sarah was still fixated on figuring this loop out. I honestly was thinking to myself that we were spending too much time on it. I had come to believe if Sarah was in fact seeing what she was seeing, that it was just a residual imprint of a gathering that had happened a long time ago in this building. But she couldn't move on for some reason. I didn't ask her why or push her to move on. I just waited to see where this was going and why she was so dead set on figuring this loop out. Then, something happened. Who are you? Oh, and he's gone! Tell me what you saw. Somebody who's acknowledging me. They're hiding in the loop. This moment happened really fast. Sarah was watching the loop intently when she suddenly pointed out at someone, snapping her fingers and yelling out, Who are you? Obviously, I couldn't see anyone else there. It was just Sarah, Renee, and me in the room. As soon as she saw it, though, she bolted after him, and then he disappeared. We had to wait and see if he would come back again. Meanwhile, my thoughts traveled back to our first investigation, and the thing that Sarah kept repeating to me over and over that night. It's a lie. They keep telling me it's a lie, she would say about this loop. Now I was wondering, were April and Stedman trying to warn us that someone was pretending to be a part of this loop? Watching us through this imprint of a party? Observing us without us even knowing it? If so, that meant we had another intelligent spirit on our hands. And I didn't like that he was outsmarting us already. It all kind of started to raise the hair on my arms a bit. We needed to know who this was and where he was hiding. He's not here. He's not here. That is so weird. He's hiding in the loop. Okay. What I have to he draw his like? eyes. Uh, he's uh, short, cropped hair. He's dressed really nice. I wish I could have seen his whole face. I couldn't get it all. All right, well, there's another spirit. There's someone else. Was he bigger? Was he very not, thin? So not like the not like one this one. To? No, no, no. He's just different. He's just he was hiding from me. You can come back. I'm not going to hurt you. What? Wow, Sidman's full of warnings today. He said, "Don't push him." Okay. Okay. Don't push. In this moment, as Sarah was trying to coax the elusive new spirit out of hiding, Stedman issued a warning to Sarah, don't push him. So we decided to listen and have a seat and just wait for a little bit to see if he'd make another appearance in the loop. Okay, we're still upstairs. 
and Sarah has just seen something in the loop that isn't part of the loop, and we're going to wait it out and see if he comes back. Steadman, can you tell me how you died? Um, I, it doesn't matter. Okay, do you want to just, don't show me, just tell me. Why would they have done that? Misunderstanding. Okay. I haven't, no, I haven't gone downstairs yet, but I'll tell her when I see her. We were seated by the Bombay room, waiting for this elusive spirit, and Stedman started to give Sarah a bit more information. But suddenly, the new spirit came back over near the upstairs bar by the loop again. This guy's back. This one's not so nice. Why are you hiding in the loop? My husband's like a magnet. It's fantastic. Uh Uh-uh. Don't you touch him. Don't do it. You keep your distance. Who are you? I don't want to ask Stedman. You tell me who you are. He's just very threatening, very menacing. He's mean. I don't like him. He left again. I don't know what he was going to do to you. He was going over to you. You were sitting in this close to the space that I saw him in earlier. Okay. Stedman says, don't push. We're going to go back down. Yeah, let's go back down and let April know what Stedman wants. This new elusive spirit apparently walked over to do something to Renee, who was sitting near the upstairs bar. But Sarah issued her own warning to the spirit, and it seemed to subdue him. But he was still being a bit dodgy, so we decided to head downstairs, deliver Stedman's message to April, and see if Sarah could get any more info on this new spirit from her. We were heading to the cellar, but Sarah said April was on the first floor near the cellar stairs when we got down there, so we stopped there. April, Stedman says he's not going anywhere without you. (laughs) That made her happy. And sad at the same time. Okay. One thing at a time. Kitchen. Uh, She likes to go into the kitchen sometimes. Okay, so she likes to go into the kitchen sometimes, so sometimes the staff is there. The glasses were practice. What were you practicing? Okay, so apparently she broke some glasses at some point in time, but that was just because she was practicing touching, and she's never done it again. She's never broken the glasses again. She won't do that again. It was an accident. She's not too thrilled about the music either, so (laughs) she's saying slow. I guess she likes slower... It's noise, too much noise. That's mm-hmm. what she's saying. But yes, this is her face. Can you tell me why you can't, um, why can Stedman not talk to you? Okay, she wants us to go downstairs. Okay. Then April wanted to go back down to the cellar, so we did. She likes that man. Wait, she likes what? That man. She likes him a lot. Oh, yeah. Dread? She likes the staff. Apparently, quite a bit. Well, a few of the staff members, quite a few of the staff members. She wants us to know that it's safe now. Everything's okay. I don't know what that means. Can you be more specific? Oh, okay. It's safe for the little ball, Renee. <laughs> Renee, you're safe. Okay? She doesn't know what that was. What was it? It was what? This one. But he's not supposed to be down here. Who is this, April? A letter. Spell? Spell for me. Oh, I was not expecting that. Okay, uh, can you do it again? Dowdy? Too much. Um, let's go back. Start Start again. Show me again. Okay, I've got that wrong. All right. Star boxes. Star boxes. 
April Stedman. Okay, so Dowdy sent the, the stars, okay, because of the boxes, and then they heard Stedman. Okay, I got it. Got it. My translation could be Dowdy called in the raid because of whatever they were doing down here. Because she's showing me down here lots of boxes. And then at the same time, somehow, they heard Stedman. So I think he's responsible for why Stedman was hurt. Which makes sense, because Stedman said he was beaten, and then she was shot. They're all connected. He's... I don't know what that is. Um, can you show me a different picture? Stairs. So the activity on the stairs... That's not her, that's him. These stairs are the stairs, not these stairs. This is her space, okay. And he's not supposed to come down here like you did right now. Mm-hmm. All right, so he pushes people, pushes people down the stairs or holds the, holds the doors, holds the doors, locks, locks the doors. I don't know, I'm seeing a hand in a doorknob, like, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, does he hurt the staff? Does he try? Trick. Trick the staff and the guests. So now we had a name for this new intelligent spirit, Dowdy. Sarah also just stated her theory on how all three spirits were connected. Then, the last bit of info about Dowdy messing with the staff and doing stuff on the first floor stairwell made me think back to both Dredd and Bali's experiences with the rocks being thrown at the first floor bar. I remember Bali saying that everyone believed the rocks were coming from that stairwell. I didn't have much time to dwell on this thought, though because April was sharing a message for Sarah to deliver to Stedman now. Okay. I will tell him, but I don't think he's going to listen. <laughs> okay. I will tell him. She's very chatty right now. Oh, okay. O- okay, go. She's got to go check something. She said we are safe here. The way that it sounds like she, the way that Stedman explained it, she was like a friend, so he helped her. She helped him learn how to read and was very nice to him when everybody else wasn't very nice to him. That's what it kind of sounds like. And um, when I asked him how did he die, he said he was beaten, but it was a misunderstanding. So I don't know what that means. I just want to know, now this dowdy person, I'll ask her if I see her again. I think that's just, yeah. I want to make sure that that's an actual name. And it's an L you're looking for here, for April. Oh, really? And the interesting thing, when I asked her about this guy, what his name was, she she showed me in... um, flashcard fashion, like if somebody was throwing a flashcard at you and so that you could guess what letter it was, that's what she did. She was like, this letter, and then this letter, and then this letter. That's how she spelled it. And I wasn't expecting that. I was like, okay. And so she, she, I had to be patient and wait for her to show me the next flashcard. But that's how I got the name. Then Sarah mentions the fire again. And then the fire's... Uh, Fire and the stairs are a concern. So the fire was something that must have happened after they passed away. It, and they're both referencing the fire like it's like a, like a separation. So I'm wondering if, if it was such a significant fire that maybe they had to remodel or do something to the structure and that ruined how they were able to communicate. That's really odd. And when you saw Stedman here, how did that happen? He just came down. She wasn't here when he came down. Kind of like what we had. Kind of like we had at the tavern, yeah. But everything that happens up here, this is all April. And she's like, here like, in, like up all up, yeah, all this from down here in the basement to first the first floor, most of the activity is hers. Okay. But the third floor, but the third the floor, stairs. that's not her. That's between 
well, because Stedman just mostly stays in that one room. Um, it's all dowdy. You getting any age based on his look? He looks maybe about late 20s, early 30s. He's young also. He's not as young as April, but he's not as young as Stedman. Stedman's very young. Stedman's like, he's 16 is what he said, but he doesn't, he looks like he's a little bit more old, like a little older, like maybe he could be in his early 20s or that kind of thing. So maybe the work aged him a little bit or something like that. But he's very um, thin looking frail because the, the clothing on him seems, he seems to be swimming in it. It seems to be like too big for him, like he borrowed it or something. And April seems to be a little more, um, a little more well-to-do, a little more collected. And so does uh, this dowdy person, but it could be just because he was dressed up for whatever was going on upstairs. April appeared in the cellar again and had a little more to share with Sarah. My mic encountered some unexplained interference during this, so please excuse the audio. Well, he said he doesn't want to leave without you. Can you tell me what your relationship was like? Help you protect him, okay? How? Stop hiding, okay? We made our way back up to the Bombay room on the second floor to continue this psychic text message conversation we are having with April and Stedman. Okay, Stedman. She said that she's trying to protect you. She wants me to help her protect you. And she wants you to stop hiding. I know, but you're going to have to leave without her. She wants you to go. She doesn't want you to stay, and she said it's not your fault. She's, how does she look? She looks good. She looks in control, if that makes sense. Okay, that does make sense, doesn't it? Sure. Do you want to show that to me? She did show that to me. Did she make those? They were very pretty. It's just Renee. He is my husband. Does that surprise you? It's a different time, Stedman. I know. Okay. Do you know what caused the fire that you guys keep mentioning? The light bulbs were not safe? The power was not, like, electrical? Can you tell me what you know about Dowdy? Can you show me what he looks like? Oh. He's that fat man's relative son? Nephew. Nephew. That's where the fat man comes into play. Okay. Sister's son, nephew, yes, okay, gotcha. I'm just getting a lot of angry stuff. Angry, cruel, aggressive, jealous. Like he did stuff and then blamed it on the people who work here. Spoiled, okay. And he didn't like Stedman. Okay, she's not gonna be happy when I tell her that. Okay. So there, he's just running through, like there's a barrage of different pictures. So like the, the lot, lots of angry faces from Dowdy. So he was a very angry person, it looks like. Um, but he was the reason why April was, April is dead and he's dead. So that's very clear apparently from both of them. And then something about the fire, he said it was not safe, something was not safe, it caused the fire. So it's either bad electrical, maybe, or bad bad wiring. It's like the place was full. They both had already passed away by the time the fire started. But the way he's seeing it, he's seeing it like it was everywhere. And he, feel, like he feels 
almost overwhelmed. Like there's so many people, there's people running around, and it's like I think you couldn't help. So they, they, they did what they could to help. From the first time you heard it now, what's, what's clearer? The difference, uh, clearer is the way that they are talking to me. Each spirit, um, Stedman is in an up third floor, small, I guess, uh, storage space. He doesn't really move around a lot. April moves around a lot on the first floor, the basement. She doesn't really go past the, to the third floor stairs, but basically the whole first floor is her area. Uh, back to the kitchen, all that, all the, so she kind of flutters around here. I'm not quite sure where Dowdy goes. I don't know if he's just localized in the third floor or if he can travel just as freely as April can. Um, so I'm thinking if they've had any, they wouldn't have any negative experiences from April. Let's put it that way. So if there's any negative experiences that they've had, that's not her. Um, and she's very clear about that. But little things like she's broken a couple of things, she's knocked some stuff off shelves. There's, um, there's music she doesn't like. Um, so I'd imagine she's probably doing stuff like lowering the volume or knocking off the radios or creating something so that the station doesn't come clear if it's on a station. Um, she doesn't really like certain music and she makes it no. One of the reports I didn't really talk about, there's actual video footage from the kitchen of dishes and cups and things falling that have been unexplained throughout the years. I'll see if I can get some of that footage and include it on the blog for this episode. And one last thing to note about what Sarah just said is the music. In the clay pit part one, Dread made reference to some instances with the music being turned on and off. I wonder if this could have been April. Um, she likes the staff quite a bit. Um, and I think it's the positivity that she has because I don't, I haven't seen really any like unhappy staff members. So I think she likes that kind of obviously as they built out <laughs> laughing. <laughs> I've not seen any unhappy staff members, and I think she likes that's the kind of energy that she likes. She's looking forward to tomorrow, tomorrow's Valentine's Day. So I think she's very giddy about the the shiny things she's going to get to see. She likes that the women get dressed up. She's a little bit different from the first time I saw her also. So she herself is also giving a different presence. So I think this is the kind of stuff that she likes. It's probably why she doesn't leave. I think that was the environment that fun that she liked. You know who I did not see this time was that little boy. Oh yeah. No sign of him? No. What and I was expecting to see him. Because last time he was running around rampant like a crazy kid. He was? But not this time. No. And I was trying to keep an eye out for him because he had a little bit more familiarity with the fire. But not today. I had almost forgotten about the little boy. I was glad Sarah mentioned this at the close of our second investigation. It was a bit peculiar that he hadn't made his presence known at all during the three hours we were there. But we'd be back soon for a third and final investigation and I was hoping we could get some validation for the things that Sarah was witnessing by this point. Sadly, however, my research continued to lead me down a path to nowhere. I couldn't find anything on April L. or a Stedman, or a Dowdy for that matter, that had any connections to the building. But again, it's kind of like finding a needle in a haystack. The building had changed addresses so much that it's hard to find in newspapers and records. Then, it went through many different hands, changing what type of business it was throughout the many years it's been here. I would need more info if I was going to connect all these dots. I also wanted to get to the bottom of this fire. Sarah kept bringing it up, and I needed to know if I could get any sort of proof that the building had had a fire at some point in time. 
Research wasn't turning up much at all. I went back to the History Center, but I still couldn't find anything. Sarah and I returned to our third and final investigation at the clay pit on March 29th. As usual, we arrived around closing time, and we'd spend the next few hours there prying more into the mystery of the spirits that seemed to be haunting this historic building. A lot of what unfolded this night was much of the same stuff she'd gotten from the spirits on the previous visits. And for the sake of time, even though there were so many interesting conversations she had with them, I'll just share with you some of the important moments of the night, because there were definitely some interesting things that went down. The first thing that Sarah spotted when we walked through the doors was that little boy again. He was back. What are you seeing right now? It's the same, same little boy. Same hat. Same. So I'm getting more. I'm actually getting a body today. Okay, cool. Slouchy shirt. Little hat. He's maybe eight. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Not eight. Six. About to be seven. Yes, April. I know. I'm sorry. She's very anxious. They push her out. That's interesting. Six, seven. Uh, maybe. I can't t- tell the health- hair color. It's almost like a dark brown, perhaps, maybe. Lots of like, where 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 have you been? I'm, I'm gonna ask. Alexis is here today. Yes, she is. Yeah. Okay. That's the tie. Oh. That's the tie. He likes her. She wasn't here last time. Oh, she. She was. The first time we came here, it was her. The second time we came, it was um, oh, the other one, Dread. Yeah. And now it's her. Okay. So we have the boy, and I'll work on him. So this was an interesting theory now. The boy was very present during our first investigation, then was entirely absent during our second. And now, suddenly, he's back and very active on the first floor as we walk through the doors. The connection Sarah was sensing was Alexis, the manager. She was closing and helped us out on the first investigation, but she was absent on the second. But now, she was back and helping us out again. And so was the boy. I found this interesting because of two things I knew that Sarah did not know. One, Bali had shared the story of the customer who was breastfeeding in the Bombay room on the second floor who reported the boy. Then, secretly, Alexis had shared with me off the record that she'd had experiences similar to that as well. Alexis is also a recent mother, and I started to make a connection with what Sarah had just reported and these two pieces of the puzzle. Two mothers sensing a childlike spirit, especially upstairs in the Bombay room, And now Sarah pointing out that this boy seems to be connected to Alexis and is active when she's around. We were hanging out in the main dining hall, waiting for the crowd to leave, and Sarah was seeing both April and the boy still. Then, she said something that took me by surprise. This boy's name is Toby, by the way. And how did you get the boy's name? He was running, I was asking. So he ran around a little bit and first gave me just a letter. And I was like, all right, you know, whatever. I'm just going to ask April. So that I was kind of like playing with him. And he finally just ran around and said, Toby. Okay, what I'm about to share with you is really strange. And I wrestled with whether or not to include it in this episode. But it's just too damn weird and interesting not to. 
So, this name, Toby, it's not something I've found through all my research online or at the History Center. And truthfully, it's not the name of any of Bertram's sons. And as we all know by now, the theory behind this kid is that he was one of Bertram's children that died of an illness in the house. But there is something very interesting about the name Toby that I wanted to share with you. Call it a coincidence if you will, but the odds of this happening is so impossible, I'm still trying to wrap my head around this. But listen to this audio clip from my first interview with Diane from Haunted ATX. In addition of the eight children the Bertrams had, four of them unfortunately died here. They lost one child, and then the next year they had a good year, no one died, and the following year they lost two little girls, eight and ten, to diphtheria, and a little boy whose name or age we do not know, to typhoid is what I read. Obviously he must have been somewhere under the age of seven, and... Uh, I like to think of him as Tobias. He speaks to me in that language, not in a ghostly sense. This was the interview I did with Diane in March, and most of that segment ended up in the Clay Pit Part 1. However, I ended up cutting out the part where she mentions the name Tobias because I thought it was a little odd to include it since there wasn't anything else that went along with that name. But once Sarah had uttered the name Toby on this third investigation... My mind went back to what Diane had casually laughed about in her interview. Now, I needed to get her on the phone and ask her more about how she got that name. When did you start referring to it? When did this sort of come to you that you, you would say his name would be Tobias? It was probably fairly early on, because I've been telling it that way for, you know, the past year or so. Yeah. It just, it just, I just felt his name was Tobias. <laughs> what can I cool. say? <laughs> it just came into my head. Another interesting thing happened on our last night there up in the Bombay room. While Sarah was having a conversation with Stedman, he asked her for a favor. He wanted her to remove something from the doorway so he could leave the room and travel downstairs. Sarah was a bit confused, and we followed along with her as she searched for this item Stedman was referring to. What? What did he say? It's, he's like, can you take that off the ground so I can go downstairs? I'll take what? I don't see anything. We walked to the doorway entrance to the Bombay room. I had a flashlight as well, and we searched the entire doorway area, but couldn't see anything. Then Sarah noticed there was another doorway that had been sealed up and no longer opened. It just had a non-functional arched wooden door. We checked the inside, but couldn't find anything. But when we went around the outside, Sarah and I discovered something. Hidden right alongside the bottom door frame was a coin. (sighs) It's a... It belongs to a medium. I can feel it. Here. I don't want it. You don't want it? Um, well, I don't know if I want it. <laughs> I don't want it. So Stedman is now out of that room? Yeah, he's out here now. I don't know if he can go see April. That's the, the other... Okay, let's test the theory. How about you go downstairs? can to go see April. Then I don't have to deal with any of you guys' messages back and forth. I'm going to grab my stuff. And we're going to move on. I kept the coin. It's nothing special, just an old penny from 1982. I'll post a photo of it on the blog for this episode. Before heading down to see if Stedman was downstairs with April now, Sarah was getting more information on the fire. We were in the main hall on the second floor, and Sarah began walking from the Bombay room towards the bar. She passed the halfway mark a little and was just slightly closer to the bar area when she started signaling where she was seeing the fire. 
After the fire, the fire had to have been a little further down, right? Where do you think the fire okay, was? Okay, so... Somewhere here, the flames came up the walls. It would have been here. Bali was actually with us when Sarah pointed out the location she was seeing the fire in. He quickly shouted this out when he saw where she was pointing. Yeah, the fire used to be right there. So as you know, I was unable to find any records of the fire anywhere. I even called the Austin Fire Department to track down records for this address, and they too found nothing in their records. But Bali had something to share with us, something really quite amazing. When we got the building and all that, you know, we had to do some research, and um, there's always breakings and stuff happening and all that. So we looked into it. Um, we had in the attic, and then we found out all those charred, uh, you know, it's not like quite burned, but like charred. So it can tell you exactly, you know, where the fire must have been, where the smoke has been, so the areas and all that. So you go to the attic, you look into it, Whereas I was pointing it out, I was kind of really um, surprised it was right above that area. And that is the area you're talking about. It. But then you go up there, the attic opens up, and you can see the entire... Someday, I will be happy to show you. I don't want to be crawling down over there, but you're welcome to come and check it out with Pedro or somebody else. But you can see, like, wood, the planks and all that, you know, they're, like, they're damaged. Because it's all... Our building has been always checked by like city of Austin we are always by the code and everything but those you can see where the burns are so I was very surprised about that so Bali shared with us that sometime in this building's history there actually must have been a fire because as he's now telling us the attic wood on the second floor is charred and to make matters even more interesting it's right where Sarah was pointing I was going to have to get into that attic and get some photographs but in the meantime, we needed to finish the investigation. We were making our way over to the second floor stairwell, but as Sarah was talking, I saw something for the first time with my very own eyes, and I had to stop her by raising my hand. The thing with these people who are kind of like having this... Is that door moving? Did someone go through that door? Hold on, I gotta check that out, because I just saw the door move. No one went through the door? Anybody back here? Nobody's in there. What I witnessed was the swinging door that leads to the back storeroom behind the second floor bar seemed to have been pushed about a quarter of the way open and then swung a few times until it stopped. Then, it happened again when we tried to go back downstairs just a few minutes later and I saw it again. So, that door moved again. I've seen that. Does it ever move on its own? I've caught it twice already. Can you open the bathroom door again? Maybe that's what... Yeah. Yeah, I'm looking. No, it didn't. Try, try difference. Yeah. Alexis, Sarah, and I tried several experiments to see if we could make the door move again. Alexis opened and shut all the doors on the upstairs floors. She checked the door in the back behind the swinging door, and it was locked, and no one else was back there. And we checked the AC duct above the door, but the air was off. We couldn't get the door to repeat what I had seen, 
These two incidents had got me thinking about a story Diane had told me about in her initial interviews that I ended up cutting out of the clay pit part one. But I wanted to play it for you now because a couple of things were lining up for me. Here are a couple of strange things that happened on the second floor of the clay pit. Usually we end up there and I have my guests because we're all tired from running up and down stairs sit down. There are usually tables and chairs set up. And I have, I'm usually standing and I have my back to the bar on the second floor. So one night in January, it was during that cold snap we had this year, as I was talking away, suddenly the gentleman sitting directly opposite started fumbling around madly uh, and said to the wife, did you see that? And she's like, what, what? So he said that in behind the bar, there's a swinging white door with a little window in it. And he had said that suddenly that door started swinging back and forth a bit and a gray shadow or shape slipped out between the door and the door jamb and floated across the wall behind the bar and then went right outside the wall of the building on 17th Street. The very next night, the very same thing happened. One of my lady guests looked at her friend and said, did you see that? And I said, what, what? And she said the same thing had happened. Suddenly that white door behind the bar started swinging a little bit and a gray shape slipped out between the door and the door jamb and floated right across the wall and disappeared out the wall of the building. Well, this time we went and looked. It was very cold, so there was no air conditioning on. There's an exit there, but none of the doors were open as far as I could tell. There was no draft coming in. Uh, There was no one behind there. It's just a room used for tables and chairs and extra stuff. So it's a mystery, but the the end of that is that I never turn my back to that bar anymore because I really want to see what happens. So now I had witnessed the very same door swinging open two times. I didn't see the gray shape, but it got me thinking about what Sarah had seen on the cellar stairs on our second investigation. She described it as a ball of smoke, and later got confirmation from both Stedman and April that this was in fact Dowdy coming down from upstairs to take a look at what was going on during that second investigation. But now, seeing the door move up by the upstairs bar, which is supposedly Dowdy's territory, and then recalling the story from Diane... It made me think that maybe all this was Dowdy messing with us. As we were finally going to head downstairs to see if Stedman had made it down to April yet, Sarah started talking to someone. It was in this moment that Sarah was getting a last name from Dowdy himself. So just know, Sarah and I aren't swearing like sailors here. I'm just bleeping out each time she or I say Dowdy's last name. For ethical and privacy purposes again. Because, surprisingly, I found someone in the Austin history records that matches this name exactly. Why are you stuck here? Who was that? That was Dowdy. That was Dowdy? He was talking to you a little bit? Last name? I'm assuming it's a last name. Yeah. Who are you? Okay. Um, Stedman's downstairs with April. That's all I'm getting. Did he say that or did he spell it out for you? He spelled it out. What's really fascinating here is that I was only able to find one Dowdy who ever lived in Travis County. I checked all the census records at the Austin History Center and online. And the last name of this Dowdy is exactly the same last name that Sarah had just gotten. Even more interesting is that this Dowdy moved to Austin in the late 30s and remained here for some time, at least through the 40s, from what I'm seeing. Not only is this the time period that Sarah has been guessing, 
This dowdy person happened to be in his late 20s, around 1940 as well, which is also the age Sarah sees him as. Another thing I'd like to point out is that Sarah's spelling of Dowdy's first name is different than the one I found in the history records. Both spelled out sound the same, but are completely different spellings. And throughout the investigation, Sarah kept saying, I think this might be a nickname. So now that I had actually found the full name of this Dowdy person in the census records, I can see how the way Sarah spells it, it's easier and it feels like it might have been something someone would have adopted to make it easier for people to pronounce and spell. And now, Sarah was getting a little bit more on the deaths of both Stedman and April and how they were connected to Dowdy. Dowdy, between the two, between April and Stedman, it seems like he was the reason why April was shot and Stedman was beaten to death. But all of that happened behind the building, like back there. Back there? Back in the, like somewhere behind, like there should, like it's almost like the building's supposed to end somewhere around here. So somewhere in there... In the back, they were outside, and Stedman saw what happened to April. He came out, and they ended up beating him to death. That's what I'm getting. Imagine where we're standing is outside on the floor. Okay, April's here. Dowdy's here. Some other people. A couple, a couple other people. There's something happening back here, like a party or a something behind them. Lots of... Yelling noise, yelling. So these guys are saying something. April saying something. These guys are, they're like drunk or Dowdy's kind of like egging on a lot of fighting. So something happens and back here somewhere somebody does something. Oh god, I can't even see it. So like they get into a fight. April's coming out. So April gets shot somewhere here, somewhere here, and then Stedman can see her. He comes out, and, and then it's just a big fight. They beat up on him. And then, come on, Dowdy. And then he lied. And then he lied. It appeared that was all Sarah was going to be able to get from Dowdy. So finally, we headed back downstairs to see if Stedman had made it down to see April. And he did. They were actually on the first floor together. So we sat down by the cellar stairs, and Sarah tried to get some more information from them together. Oh, okay, so... Dowdy is stuck in the loop on purpose. She did that. I could release him if I wanted to. <laughs> what she's saying, but she wants to keep him there. Well, he did say that he lied. What did he lie about? He's okay. Tell me again. So essentially, to get out of trouble for what happened to April, they blamed Stedman. From what Sarah was getting, she seemed to believe that Dowdy was at fault for the deaths of both April and Stedman. Exactly how, we don't know, but what she pieced together was that he called in some sort of raid of police or men, and there was a big fight, April got shot accidentally, and Stedman saw what happened and ran over to help, then he got attacked and beat to death. This last bit of information regarding Dowdy lying seemed to indicate that he lied about how April died and possibly put the blame on Stedman, in turn getting him killed, or possibly just passing the blame off to someone else so he wouldn't be questioned. April, can you... And we're going to do it in a flashcard formation. Okay. That makes sense. Like me? No, not like me. Like, um, 
That makes total sense. Okay, so I was re uh, mentally referencing the coin that was upstairs, and April was like, yeah, there was a... She said, like me, but not like me. More frightened, more frightened, more scared. Um, medium. She did drop the coin on purpose. Steadman's afraid of those kinds of things, anything that's on the ground like that. It's a... It's like an old wives' tale that he believes. Well, I'm glad you guys can see each other again. That's really nice. You're very much welcome. Um, and you really shouldn't be afraid of anything that gets thrown on the floor, Steadman. Could be just anything. It was time to wrap up. We'd gotten a lot from this last session. The weird instance with the name Toby, the last name from Dowdy that matched what I knew from my research, connecting what I saw upstairs to the stories Diane shared and possibly the smoky figure Sarah had seen on the last visit, the coin that seemed to have been keeping Stedman locked in the Bombay room, and last but not least, we had some confirmation of the fire, at least from what Bali was telling us. The spirits here didn't seem to have any real issues or concerns, especially now that Stedman was no longer trapped in the Bombay room. So we were content with wrapping this case up. I still wanted to see the charred attic with my own eyes because I had been struggling to find any record of a fire and wanted to see it for myself. I went back one night with my friend and fellow ghost hunter, Alexis. Bali had a ladder set up and the door to the attic opened up for us. I took my flashlight and a camera and climbed up to see what I could see. I was really surprised to see the amount of char that I saw. It was all over the entire attic and spanned as far as I could see in either direction. It was literally all black. There were only cracks and splits where I could see natural wood color. The ceiling of the attic, the rafters, the beams, it was all covered as far as my eyes could see. And to be honest, I was kind of relieved. I finally had some validation for the fire that Sarah kept seeing. I now saw it with my very own eyes. I went ahead and took several photos, and will include them in this episode's blog. But I took this a step further. And with the help of a friend and fellow listener, Sasha, I was put in touch with a firefighter in Leander named Mike, who then was able to connect me with a retired City of Austin fireman named Dale Flat. I wanted to get a fireman's input on what we were really looking at here. To my surprise, Dale just so happened to know a lot about the history of the Bertram building and even had a letter from one of Bertram's kinfolk. Listen to what he had to share. My name is Dale Flat. I'm uh, 60 years old. I uh, work for the Austin Fire Department. For 28 years and seven months, I retired a few years ago. Um, I'm also known for my work with historic cemeteries and uh, the history of Austin, Texas. The uh, the, the photographs you uh, you sent over appear to have it was obvious by you touching them and, and having some soot on your your fingers that at some point uh, there might have been a fire. It could be in the lower portions of that building, and smoke rises. And it could have coated all that. But when you look at the boards, you can still see the cuts from the sawmill on them. You, you can see that, how that, that wood was, was milled. And they don't appear to be charred. Typically, when you look at a, a framing structure or things like that inside of a house, it'll have those big lumps in it, you know, where, where the, the surface is burned through and it has a very different texture to it. But that appears to be smooth. And so in looking back through my, my records... For the Bertram family, uh, I had a, a letter from the great-great-grandson by the name of Hal Blades. And in that letter, he uh, said that uh, Rudolph Bertram owned the building that was the clay pit 
that there was a, a mercantile store beneath it, and then the family lived above it. But he also had a different store that had a total loss by fire. And so it's very conceivable that the fire may not have been inside of the clay pit, that they used the reclaimed wood from the other location and used it inside of that location. This new bit of information regarding the fire at another business Rudolf Bertram owned was definitely intriguing. And Dell's theory that it's possible the wood in this attic of the clay pit might have been salvaged wood from this other building can open up a whole new world of possibilities for everything Sarah was seeing and reading. Way too many for me to explore now that this series is coming to an end. If this was true, it might explain why the images of the fire were so vague and confusing to Sarah. If the boy isn't Bertram's son and was in fact a Toby, where did he come from? Did he die in the fire from that other building? Did he come with the energy stored in that wood? But then there's also this. After the conversation with Dell, I pulled up my photos to give them one more good look. All the wood is covered in soot, not char, now that I know the difference thanks to Dell, but all of it is black. The beams on the floor, the rafters, the ceiling, and upon closer inspection, it appears in one of my photos, you can see the limestone wall all the way in the back of the attic. And it too appears to be covered with the same black soot. So it's hard to think that, if one could salvage wood from a devastating fire, that it would all go into building an attic that consists of many various sizes of lumber. I don't know if we'll ever solve the mystery behind this fire and the soot that's in the attic of the clay pit, but I'm content with knowing that this is evidence of an actual fire. And Sarah, with absolutely no way of knowing, called it out on our first investigation of this building back on January 18th. I was pretty content with ending this episode here, but you won't believe what happened on May 1st. I got a text from Diane with Haunted ATX informing me that a guest she just had on her most recent tour had taken a photograph that I needed to see. The woman who took the photograph was named Andrea, and she was from Maine, a very long way away from Texas. She was back home now, but was willing to text me the photo. When I got it, I was completely stunned by what I was looking at. I had a feeling I knew what spirit she had captured in this photo because of the location. It was on the second floor, and in the shot, you can see the bar and the three mirrors behind it. And in the reflection of the middle mirror, you can clearly see someone just sitting there, wearing a dark suit. He looks young, very thin, and pale, and has what appears to be dark slicked hair. And it appeared that his arm was resting on the bar. I quickly text the photo to Sarah, and she messaged me back, saying, That's Dowdy. Um, so, um, I'm a nurse, and my best friend growing up is a nurse, and she has um, annual conferences. Um, so we were in Houston, and my niece and my sister-in-law live in Austin, so we decided after her conference was done that we would um, go over to Austin. My niece and nephew had to work on Monday, so I said, well, we'll just get a hotel at the airport in Austin, and I needed something to do. Sunday night, we just didn't want to sit around, so I started looking at TripAdvisor, and I found this, this tour, and we had done one in San Antonio together and had a blast. So I said, well, let's just do one here. So anyways, we did the four visits. This is the last place we stopped at, and we were upstairs 
and my friend is in the first mirror. She said, I'm going to take a picture. And I said, oh, that would be so cool to get a picture of you taking a picture. And I never looked at the photos until Monday morning because I was saving my battery in case we had to Uber back to the um, airport. So I'm sitting in the airport Monday morning looking through the photos and enlarging them. And I remember I, I said, oh, there you are. It's so cool. And I slid over to the middle mirror and I like... I handed the phone to my friend and I said, ah, he wasn't on the tour. <laughs> so she's like, oh, my God, I can't believe you got that. It kind of freaked us both out at once at the same time. So I um, I think it was our layover in JFK. I went ahead and sent it to Diane, our tour guide. Well, there was six of us, so there was two gentlemen from Brooklyn, and I know this wasn't them because they were down the stairs. They were headed down the stairs when I took the photo. Um, and then there was two girls from Queens, and they were on the other side of the big room checking out the other side. So it was just, and the tour guide was standing at the top of the stairs waiting for us to get done. So it was just Lori and I um, on that side of the room. Yeah, so I knew definitely it wasn't the guys that were with us. Were those guys at all wearing any type of, just to, just to rule it out, what were they dressed like? Um, both, both of us had T-shirts on. Um, I would say both of them were in their um, early 30s. Um, one was Greek, dark-skinned, and the other one, he looked like he was Scandinavian. He had an accent, um, blondish hair. It looks like a gentleman sitting at the bar, and even though I know it's sideways, and it looks like, to me, he has a suit on, and he definitely has the haircut that would have been, I'm thinking, 40s, 50s, you know, that type of um, neat haircut, but kind of greased, you know, kind of combed up and over. That's what it looks like to me. As always, I'll have this photo in the blog for this episode that you can access at thenightowlpodcast.com. Just click on the blog tab on the homepage and click on this episode's blog link. As I wrapped up this case, there were some things that I couldn't shake. Sarah came in without any information and validated a lot of the activity reported. But she also brought new things to light. The fire and the spirit no one had ever mentioned or even seen before. Dowdy. But then... At the end of this wild experience, we get a photo from a complete stranger that appears to have this spirit captured in it, and he's exactly where Sarah always sees him, and matching her description. Not to mention, the name Dowdy is so unique. I was only able to find one person with that name in all of Austin's census records, and for Sarah to get that name and the last name that matched this one person, I found was beyond incredible. I'll be honest, I was upset I wasn't able to find hard evidence of April or Stedman's death or their connection to the building. But you know what? I'm just one dude with a podcast trying to tell good, true ghost stories. And I think what we uncovered here was definitely enough for believers and skeptics to scratch their heads over. To raise the question, can this be real? Do ghosts really exist? Well, I'll tell you, I'm getting more and more convinced with each episode I push myself through. Remember to visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash the Night Owl Podcast and consider becoming a Night Owl patron. A special thank you goes out there to all my current patrons. Your recurring monthly contributions help keep the show going and improving. Don't forget to check out all the exclusive extra content on our Patreon page that only you as a patron have access to. 
I want to thank my two wonderfully talented musician friends, Nicholas Fair and P.D. Wilder, for providing the music for the show. Please show your support for their amazing work by visiting their websites. Links to them can be found at thenightoutpodcast.com under our credits page. I would also like to thank all my special guests for their helpful input and resources. And be sure to check out author and historian Richard Zelade's fascinating and informative book called Guide Town by Gaslight, A History of Vice in Austin's First Ward. Also, retired fireman Dale Flatt is part of a preservation group called Save Austin Cemeteries, and they offer tours and classes to re-engage the city with its cemeteries. So please visit sac.org and show them some support. I'd like to thank the Clay Pit staff for sharing their stories with us, with a special thank you to manager Alexis and co-owner Bali for all of their extra efforts to make this series come together the way that it did. And as always, a big thank you to Haunted ATX, Mark, Allie, and Diane for all your help and support throughout this series. If you'd like to tour the Clay Pit, make sure to visit their website and book a ghost tour today. Visit hauntedatx.com. Thanks for listening to episode 8 of the Night Owl Podcast. If you're not already, find us and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Here I post a lot about upcoming episodes, and you get sneak peeks and behind-the-scenes photographs of each location. And as always, make sure to go to our website, thenightowlpodcast.com. Here you can access our blog, which has a ton of behind-the-scenes information and photographs from each episode. Stay restless out there, and we'll see you next time. This podcast was mastered by David Dalton of Driftwork Sound. If you're ready to up the production quality of your podcasts or music, go to driftworksound.com. That's D-R-I-F-T, worksound.com. And get your project mixed, mastered, or produced using well-established methods and unconventional techniques. That's driftworksound.com. And remember, your first master is completely free.